Welcome to 2024, Pedro Pearls listeners. We are back with a brand new Industry 101 episode. Like all things industry, it's hard to know where to start, and investigator-initiated studies are no different. Thankfully, two wonderful guests are here today to dispel rumors and put your mind at ease when it comes to starting your own investigator-initiated studies. Welcome to episode four of Industry 101. Before we get started, I would like to thank our program supporters, Arcutus Biotherapeutics, Dermavant Sciences, Galderma, Insight, Santa Fe Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. This is an independent medical education program and Petra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all speakers, authors, moderators, and faculty. Now I would like to introduce your Industry 101 host, Dr. Harper Price. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, I'll give you a brief snippet into her amazing career and work. Dr. Price is the Division Chief for the Department of Dermatology at Phoenix Children's Hospital. She is the Director of the Multidisciplinary Congenital and Genetic Skin Disease Clinic and Epidermolysis Bullosa Clinic at PCH, as well as the Co-Director of the Vascular Anomalies Clinic. Dr. Price has been a major champion of PEDRA and a dedicated member for many years, and we are delighted to have her back hosting episode four. Well, once again, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Price. I'll turn it over to you. Great. Thank you, Jen. I'm delighted today to be joined by uh, two wonderful speakers. Uh, I'd like to introduce one of PEDRA's original co-founders, Dr. Beth Drolet. Uh, many of you probably know her or have heard of her. Uh, Dr. Drolet has, has over 30 years of experience in leadership and academic medicine and currently serves as the Geneva F. and Stuart Johnson Distinguished Chair of the Dermatology Department at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Dr. Drolet has published over 150 manuscripts and her research focuses on birthmarks and vascular anomalies. Her team uses next-generation sequencing to identify genetic causes of vascular anomalies and is working to develop novel medications that target these gene mutations. Her team is also using artificial intelligence to build algorithms for the diagnosis of birthmarks. Her research efforts have been supported by National Institutes of Health, the Greater Milwaukee Foundation, Dermatology Foundation, and PEDRA, of course. And thank you so much for, for joining us, Dr. Drolet. It's truly a treasure. Uh, you were looked at as, as one of our you know, major players in dermatology research and pediatric dermatology, so thank you. Um, and back by popular demand is Dr. Michael Howe. We're so happy to have you back. He actually did a working with large and small pharma episode, but in case you missed it, Dr. Howe is currently serving as the Chief Scientific Officer and Head of Translational Science at Zura Bio. He's also the founder of Mountaineer Biosciences and co-founder of Galileo Biosystems. He's an immunologist with more than 20 years of experience in the government, academia, and the biopharma biotech sector. He previously served as the chief scientific officer at DermTech. Prior to joining DermTech, Dr. Howell was a faculty member at National Jewish Health and had increasing positions of responsibility, responsibility excuse me, at Boeinger, Ingelheim, Metamune, AstraZeneca, and Insight Corporation. He's previously led R&D teams dedicated to the discovery of novel therapies for dermatology and the integration of novel biomarker approaches into clinical development. His efforts have led to the approval of multiple therapies, novel diagnostic approaches to patient treatments, and have been highlighted in more than 50 publications and numerous patents. 
He received his PhD in immunology from West Virginia University and completed his postdoctoral training at National Jewish Health. So thank you again for joining us, Dr. Howell. So today our discussion is going to be focusing on uh, investigator-initiated studies. There's lots of terms for these. These are also known as investigator-initiated research, investigator-initiated trials, and on and on and on. So before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, I want to talk about exactly what these terms mean. And no matter which term people refer to, IIR, IIS, IIT, and I think there's even more, what we're really talking about are clinical studies initiated and managed by a non-pharmaceutical, non-industry or company researcher. So this could be an individual investigator, you know, such as those listening, an institution, even a group of institutions or a collaborative study group. That would essentially be the sponsor and the investigator. Um, and that's really the main premise is that the responsibility of being the sponsor and the investigator really lies with that person, entity, or group that conceives of and conducts the study from start to finish. And so an example of this I always talk about that I wish I had done and had thrown around is uh, when crisoborol, which is a topical PD-4 inhibitor, came about for atopic dermatitis. We, we were all thinking of ways to kind of repurpose this and trying it on everything, obviously off-label, uh, and we had, a few of us had tried it for um, itchy ilvin or sort of itchy epidermal nevi and found that it's really helpful. So one of the things we all kicked around in a, a small little group we have is, hey, we should, you know, approach the company and see if we can do an IIR um, proposal and get some drug to to study this in this group of patients with a rare disease. And and of course, we we didn't, we didn't succeed. We didn't do it. But kind of, I wanted to give the audience an example of, of what I think of um, when I kind of approach patients. And I think the nice thing about these type of, of projects is that they really affect the day-to-day -day clinician and they can affect the day-to-day -day clinician and how we take care of patients. And they often driven by problems that our patients bring up or problems that we see in clinical practice. So I wanna open up with a kind of first question. We touched on this a little bit and, and either of you can respond, but I'll just certainly point this out to Michael to get us open. Uh, what's what is the purpose of these investigator initiated studies and and why are they important in the realm of research? Sure. And so thank you again for the opportunity to participate in this. This is a, a, a incredible opportunity to be able to uh, provide some insight from the industry perspective and to hopefully stimulate some additional thoughts and to stimulate other individuals to start doing this type of an approach. Um, one of the main reasons that a pharmaceutical company would be open to the concept of a IIS or an IIT is that, quite honestly, we can't think of everything. And so when you look at the individuals who are on the front lines of treating patients um, and understanding the, the scientific mechanism of action for our given therapeutic, there are different things that you're going to think of that from a kind of drug development and commercializable opportunity, we're not going to pursue. And so from that kind of um, background, it gives an opportunity for the investigators to go through and explore the utilization of, in most cases, a already approved therapeutic in a new indication or in a new situation. And a lot of that is based off of the mechanistic understanding, what they've seen with uh, the drug itself and other indications and the therapeutic benefit that it provides. And that actually opens up an entire new world um, for the drug companies, for example, or pharmaceutical companies to start thinking about how their drug could be expanded. And so that's one of the simplest ways to start thinking about this. 
um, and would love for Dr. Drolet to be able to provide additional insight if she has any. Thanks, Michael. Uh, that's a, a really great point. And I think I would just emphasize that uh, clinicians uh, really uh, live every day the knowledge gap um, or treatment gaps. And, and so it, it, it's almost so obvious to us sometimes that we need, you know, a topical for an inflammatory nevus uh, that it doesn't seem innovative. So I think um, really uh, that's where, you know, partnering with, with folks, um, you know, if you had a week, you know, what was the biggest problem? What was the most common problem that needed to be solved in, you know, a diagnostic or therapeutic realm? Uh, but I think sometimes we we um, don't trust ourselves as much uh, to be uh, that innovator. But really, uh, when when you work with industry, um, they are just so hungry for those ideas and those new applications for existing um, drugs. So I think that that's one thing I've learned over the years is things that I think are so simple and so obvious, like even explaining to like medical students, you're like, no, you know, this is why we need a topical because blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, I think that's the first thing is just, you know, really own your knowledge and own the expertise that you have and put a value to it. That's great. I think uh, we, we are right, Beth, we don't always, I think many of us don't kind of think of the day-to-day, -day, the impact that we could have in the application of some of these other medications we we probably sort of take for granted for a lot of things. I think in turn, we repurpose everything. I don't know if that makes us more unique in other specialties, but we certainly do a lot of things off-label because um, we don't have a lot of FDA-approved drugs for children. So I think this is where it makes it super important, as you said, Michael. Um, if someone's kind of thinking about approaching this, and we've both, we've all talked about like something that's already approved for something else, what is, what's the, what, what phase, at what point in drug development should you know, should we be thinking about these type of approaches? Sure. So let's hit from right from the very beginning. So thinking about dermatology alone, um, there's over 3,000 identified and classified skin diseases. There's not a single drug company in the world that's going to develop a therapeutic for all 3,000. Mm -hmm. um, and so just keep that in mind as you go through this. There, there's a lot of these that are potentially one-offs or orphan indications. And so really understanding what the therapeutic is going to do. So typically... What you want to have from a clinician's perspective is at least some understanding of how the drug works. And so that often comes from a proof of concept or a proof of mechanism study, which is typically a phase two. At that point in time, there's nothing that prevents you from having a conversation with a pharmaceutical company to start exploring other indications. And so, for example, you know, if they're pursuing a therapeutic indication of atopic dermatitis and you believe based on the mechanism that you've seen within any of the published research, that it could apply to other indications like ichthyosis or um, alopecia or things where there's comorbid conditions or the same inflammatory axes, it's worth having that conversation. Now, ultimately, the drug companies, um, and depending on who they are, they have a, a level of accepted risk. And this is where kind of the pluses and the negatives come in. Um, so from an IIT, IIS perspective, Obviously, the investigator is going to hold the IND, uh, and they're going to hold the responsibility of that. But anything that comes out of that proposed trial is then associated with that program, regardless of whether the sponsor ran the trial or the investigator ran the trial. And so there's a degree of risk early on within a phase two program that it may impact your ultimate launch. And so for some cases, you can start those conversations when it's a phase two molecule. 
And then as it progresses into a phase three, you may get more acceptance from a pharmaceutical company to explore that option a little bit further. And certainly after the drug is actually launched, um, they're a bit more open. That's why a lot of medical affairs groups are out there trying to explore conversations with investigators. How do we do an indication expansion, life cycle management, things like that, to explore in a very small type of a study with the investigators, truly the key opinion leaders, are there other opportunities that will venture into this? But to answer your question very directly, there is no time at which it's not appropriate to have that conversation, unless, of course, the drug isn't in clinical trials. Right. That's that's great. That's really helpful. You mentioned IND, and just for the audience purpose, uh, for those people that may not be familiar familiar with this, and and one of my own personal experiences with with a with an investigational device, which we think more of drugs and dermatology impedes derm, but there are certainly devices and assays and other things, right, that that people can can do these projects with. Um, can you talk a little bit about that briefly? Just, you know, if I want to repurpose metformin for hydradenitis or something in my teenagers, you know, I know my investigational review board's going to come back and say, well, it's approved for this and that, but it's not approved for what you want to use it for, Dr. Price. And you're reaching out to the company, like that seems just a scary thing. FDA, IND. <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. It's not scary at all. So, you know, there, there are master files that are associated with each therapeutic as it goes through a developmental process. And there's the investigators brochures, which many of you are familiar with. And so you obviously were going to take a look at an investigator's brochure based on what studies have already been done. A lot of this provides information for you as an investigator and physician scientists, for example. And based on that information, when you reach out to the company and say, listen, I would like to utilize this potential therapeutic in another indication that it's not currently uh, launched or approved in. The opportunity and the engagement that you have with them is that you would then take on their IND. So there's a cross-reference that they would provide to you. So you can actually make your own submission um, to the regulatory authority by cross-referencing what their IND is already and the information that is related to that particular therapeutic, again, that master file. That allows the FDA to understand exactly what's already been done. Um, and then you have to provide a rationale as to why you think that in this newer indication, there's a reason to believe in a path forward. It's not scary. Um, in many cases, you end up with entire teams that are willing to help you go through that process by providing you access to that information. Um, and often it makes it very simple. Um, but there is the the initial work up front where if this is the first time that you're going through it, um, you'll see as an investigator that there's it's almost like a checklist of making sure you have the right documents, the right pieces of information. Um, you understand the safety profile of a particular therapeutic and then ultimately make sure you're engaged with that company throughout the entire process. Beth, you've obviously had experiences with these as well, I'm assuming. Um, yeah, um, I, I hold a couple INDs, which, um, you know, still make me nervous. So it is a little scary. But um, I, I think there is also institutional support at mm -hmm. most places, a little hard to find. But um, there's also, I think most institutions have some experience. My question, Mike, like, when do you have to, so the, I've never worked with an existing um, pharmaceutical company, I think because of they've been generic. So when do you have to contact the company and when don't you have to contact the company? Sure. So realistically, if the drug is still in development, it is not commercially available. Yeah. And so as soon as you think of your idea, and this is just from a very practical perspective. Um, so if the company is not currently pursuing that particular indication, 
One, I would encourage you to engage with your tech transfer office to immediately think about what IP is existing in that space. Um, ensure that you have either safe harbor or if there is no coverage for that indication that you file appropriately. Then reach out to the company directly, have the conversations with them um, to say, listen, this is a study that I would like to propose. And that can be, again, most companies, let's be honest, are not going to give you opportunity to do that if it's still in phase one. Um, they mm -hmm. want to at least understand that the drug is relatively safe, particularly in dermatology. Um, they want to see that the drug is safe within a normal sad, mad phase one study. Once it gets into a phase two, they start to learn a little bit more about that drug. And we as investigators on the outside of it will understand a little bit more about the mechanism of action. And that's usually when we get enticed is because we saw something happen within a trial um, or in a patient that we've recruited within a clinical trial. And we think, oh, my gosh, this might work here. And so you start to have the conversation with some of the team members that are there. And inevitably, what will happen is almost all companies have some sort of a portal that you write up a very simplistic proposal that says, this is the type of a trial that I think I would like to do. You submit it to the appropriate individual within that respective company, and then they take a chance to review that. Now, the one in really interesting thing for IITs and IISs is, is that the company has an opportunity to review it. Um, they cannot ultimately go through and make major changes to the actual trial. Um, they can make suggestions on how to improve the overall study design, but ultimately the trial design itself is up to you. Um, and that's why one of the very distinct um, kind of requirements as you think about an IIT and an IIS. And so you can have that conversation. Um, some of the cases in mine in the past have started as a sponsored research agreement where we've utilized a, a therapeutic that we were developing, partnered with a physician scientist to explore it in a different indication under some translational work, or some other preclinical work. And as they saw the benefit come out of that, they realized, you know, beyond your lead indication, we think that it could work here, here, and here. So we can have that conversation just um, very casually and then request a formalized proposal from that investigator to submit it to the portal that says, this is the type of trial I would like to run. And then the company makes the decision on, yes, they want to fund it now, or um, they want to move forward with it now or they want to delay it until, say, they have additional data that makes them feel like it's de-risked enough. You know, one thing, Harper, I was thinking about when you gave your example, maybe to, to make it a little less scary or a little bit um, less overwhelming, but many of us start like, really simple with, like, um, you know, maybe collecting a group of people that are interested in the disease, talking about the drug, which sounds like you did um, um, with your example, Maybe then it's a survey of how people are using it. And then maybe it's a case series of um, looking at some outcomes or even just safety of this off-label indication. So when we worked a lot with the Timolol for infantile um, it was, you know, we need a topical. We identified that gap. We talked to a whole bunch of us, like, you know, do you think we should try it? And then um, Elena Pope wrote the first article and then we all got together and we said, it seems like it's working pretty good. Let's try to get, you know, the best we can from a retrospective data, but also look at safety, which is, you know, even more important, um, wrote up a big case series. Um, and then we were able to get a grant through um, the uh, FDA um, with a pediatric trials network at, um, at Duke uh, to say, you know, we're using this drug a lot off-label. 
we didn't really work with industry. That's why I was like, I don't know if we should have. But then, you know, Duke actually took on this dermatology protocol to say, um, let's see if we can get a label change for this. We we didn't really have a sponsor because of the IP. There, there was no mm-hmm. IP, but it was still something that would help us with patients. Um, and then um, got a grant from the NIH to run um, investigator-initiated clinical trial, looking at two different percentages and um, efficacy. And, and the FDA worked with us very closely. Mm-hmm. So I think that the scary part for me was the FDA. But when um, I think they're very supportive of investigator-initiated um, projects and um, made some of the best um, recommendations for trial design <laughs> that really helped us a lot, um, you know, both with recruiting patients. Um, so they said, you know, maybe you don't need a placebo because it's going to be hard to recruit. And, you know, I thought the FDA would make us have a placebo and they, they had suggested, you know, two different percentages, which, you know, um, I just hadn't thought of. Um, so I think that, that that's another way, you know, to kind of get your feet as a stepwise way into doing some of these trials, you know, from that discussion that you had to, you know, how do you get there to like actually putting something into this portal like Michael was talking about. And I think that's where we actually do really good as pediatric dermatologists, but it drops off after, you know, maybe that retrospective case series. Um, So bringing Michael in is really beneficial to say, okay, what's next after that? Um, How can we move it forward a little bit um, further? Yeah, that's, that's great. I love, I love hearing your experience and it's, it's nice to know, even though we're focusing on industry, that there's so many other opportunities, like you said, some, some drugs really don't truly have a, they're generic and they don't have a sponsor. We use a lot of old repurposed things to, to know how to navigate that water. And it's, um, Michael, it's great to hear how much that industry and pharma will be supportive and give feedback. Um, hadn't always been my experience or thought of how it was. And so it sounds like there's a real partnership there in wanting the investigators to succeed and that they can't quite take away our our ideas and, and thoughts because we're the we're the ones executing, but that, that they give some feedback as to what they think might be be helpful. Does I have that have that right um in, in a sense? Yeah, and just to keep in mind, so all of us for a majority of us, I should say, that are within the drug development industry, um, our goal isn't to try and you know take on every little piece of the world. Um, our goal deep down is to make sure that we bring forward therapeutics to patients who have a high unmet need that are not currently getting treated with adequate medicines. And so we have the same belief that the physicians do that are out in the field, which is how do we, how do we take a therapeutic forward that will provide a life-changing benefit for those individuals? The difference is from you know the scientific and clinical side of it is that there's also the commercial enterprise that we have to do within the pharmaceutical industry. And so there are directives that we have to follow associated with that. But by no means does that take away the fact that we have a passion to ultimately bring forward new therapeutics for patients that are still struggling. And so what you'll find is that um, there's individuals within every company that are still holding to that thought process. And the appropriate way you've already stated is to think about it as a partnership as opposed to any sort of competition. Because ultimately in the end, Patients are the first priority in trying to figure out how do we actually bring through the right things to the right patients. And that is a collaboration that actually goes across the entire scientific and medical community. That's great. And that, the patient is at the center of all this year. <clears throat> so so right to think of, to come back to the heart of what we do and, and what mm-hmm. we're doing this for. And as you know, Beth was mentioning, she's had 
a lot of collaboration with uh, with private and, and national funding agencies and things like that and, and universities. I think, Beth, people look up to you and know that you've been, accomplished so much. And same thing with, with you, Michael. What what does an investigator, someone listening to this right now, really need to think about when they're approaching these things and maybe they have a little imposter syndrome? Am I, am I experienced enough? Should I even be tackling this uh, from, from an industry you know, or, or outside partner? What are you looking for in an investigator that you feel like is going to really make you feel like they can, they can execute this, they're going to be a good partner, uh, and those sorts of things? From my perspective, it's a understanding of what you want to do. So you will, you know, as you're early in your career and, and, and really reaching out to the people, again, don't think of us as the bad pharmaceutical industry. We are here to work with you, um, particularly, you know, and I can speak on my my case, but um, I would expect that a majority of the individuals that are out there. Um, I, I enjoy having conversations about where do we think that a particular mechanism of action may be beneficial in a patient population. Again, you know, as smart as we all are with our advanced degrees and things that we've done within our entire lifetime, I can't cover everything and I don't know everything. Um, I'm reminded of that every day by my kids that I don't know everything. So the the joy behind this is that there's an opportunity to leverage the expertise that others have. And so whether that's an early conversation, um, trying to identify those individuals that are early in their career and so they're thinking a little differently, than some of the more established individuals that have, you know, been down 30 years of practice, for example, they have their reg regimen that they use on a routine basis because it works for them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, first and foremost, have a conversation with somebody. And then second, work with them. You know, it's a, a growth opportunity for every individual to start learning about what the process is for a clinical trial as a whole. And then figuring out how do you implement your own strategies within those clinical trials, not only the design, but also the execution. There's no expectation that an individual who has, you know, early in their career is going to be able to walk in and say, I'm going to lead a phase three program. One, that's not going to happen. Um, that's why we use contract research organizations to help us do all this stuff. So we don't have that expectation. And we realize that there may be a fair bit of handholding in some of these indications um, or at least in some of these investigators as they get their start within this part, uh, at least this part of uh, clinical development. But it's a it's an opportunity for you to grow. If somebody comes back through and says they're looking for a more senior investigator, you know, Beth has already mentioned. So you find a group of individuals who have an experience within this and start thinking about how do you collaborate with one another to be able to bring this forward. And it may be a really nice mentorship opportunity, actually, for some of these senior investigators to bring alongside a junior investigator and say, listen, we're going to do this together. Let's go and engage with the company directly or engage in whatever process you need to. And then outline what that study is going to look like. And that way you can learn through that entire process. It's a huge opportunity for mentorship for people. That's a that's a really good point. And I think one thing, and I'm sure Beth will agree that we do really well in Pedsterm, I feel, is, is mentorship of each other and everyone's being, everyone's really been very open to helping one another regardless of stage of career. I feel like I could email Beth a question or ask her opinion or say, who who could mentor me in this? Or uh, I think we're just a really good collaborative um, bunch of of cool people. Uh, but Beth, do you have any thoughts on, on I know you've, you've kind of talked a bit about 
um, it, you know, your, your journey through, through these type of things. And, you know, from maybe your, your early days of, of kind of starting this, of what, what someone might think of as an early investigator, any other tips that they might be trying to tackle something like this? I think emphasizing the growth mindset. And I think Michael was getting to that, but uh, sometimes if, if I'm nervous or feel like I, you know, I, I don't have the expertise, if I can shift that to a growth mindset and then um, casting that very broad net. And I, I, and this is maybe not so pig's derm ish, but I think talking to a lot of people um, and I'm so action oriented, I'm like, okay, I want to do something right away. But I think, you know, trying to be a little bit more strategic about your partnership. So casting a very broad net. And every time you talk to somebody, even if nothing happens, you've learned something. Um, but then being very strategic, you know, time, I, I put down here, create time. I was like, oh, I can't say that because nobody, <laughs> Dr. Bertol just said time. So, but I, so I do think, you know, our time and each project is, is so high value for your patients and for yourself. So I, I think being very collaborative, um, you know, broad net, but then being strategic about your partnerships. Um, like Michael said, is this the right size company? Are they at the right stage? Maybe a year ago, they, they had a lot of time to dedicate to an investigator initiated project, but now they're launching something else or they've lost, you know, they've, you know, had a failure in one of their other lines and, you know, things like that change pretty rapidly. So I think, you know, being adaptable and strategic about where you spend your time and having that, that, you know, growth mindset, this is just going to be, you know, a new part of my career that I, has a huge mm -hmm. impact. And then I also just want to emphasize, uh, I think some of my peers might laugh that I'm doing this industry podcast because I, I, I had a reputation for a long time of not working with industry. And um, I'm not sure why I just, maybe it was a bandwidth issue, but I, I wanted to, you know, I really wanted to create new knowledge. And um, it wasn't until later in my career where I had some forced interactions. And I will tell you, once I had those interactions, um, the trajectory of what I've been able to do for patients just skyrocketed. So there was this like, you know, I, I don't want to say industry is bad, but I'm academic and I, I don't want to be um, influenced by the commercial world, like a very righteous <laughs> attitude. And um, I, I think when you look at, um, at least for me, where I think I've made bigger impact, that, those partnerships, um, just like I'm making partnerships with other specialties and other pediatric dermatologists, there, there was, there's nothing different about these partnerships. Um, uh, and there is, in fact, sometimes greater transparency. Like Michael said, you know, we have a commercial business and it's just out there. And they say that, so it's sort of refreshing um, in some ways. So I, I guess for, for young folks, um, that would be something, I think if I had to rewind my career a little bit, I might've done that a little bit right there. That's really interesting. And I, of course, I love your growth mindset. I wrote that down. I just think that's, it's a strong point if you feel a little bit like you don't, maybe don't have the total experience, but you really focus on the positive of moving something forward and, and grow. So I, I just love that. And I think it's really, really important. I think we tend to be real self-critical, right. Of, of especially starting out early on. So I think we've really touched on a lot of what goes into the application from Michael, from what you were talking about, like where in the, the process to, to think about these things, what to think about, how to collaborate, and I want to change gears just a tad 
you know, we're also positive, but I, I want to talk about some some pitfalls and and things that you know, kind of pros and cons of this approach. You know, also maybe what um, Beth, from your perspective, what people might want to be aware of or avoid. And, and Michael, sort of from your side of the industry side of you know some things that maybe didn't go well or things. And I, I wanted to start out by you know um, thinking about a couple topics that came to mind when when Jen and I were discussing this topic is you know, working with your your local IRB, that conflict of interest where someone's funding drug, how much, you know, how does that, how does that work? Um, some of those, those things I know are local institutions, Beth, can be mm-hmm. um, very helpful, but also pose some, some challenges sometimes. And I wonder if either of you wanted to start kind of talking about some of the pitfalls and, and challenges. Well, I'll, I'll start. And, and Michael had brought this up. Uh, don't be afraid of your tech transfer office. Uh, again, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, what, this can't be patentable, but um, it, it, you owe it to your university who has invested in you uh, to reach out to them. It can be enormous. It probably is an advantage. I don't know if you can comment on this, Michael, if you come, you know, with some IP. So it, it, um, when interacting, the conflict of interest, it, so my strategy is get close to the Office of Conflict of Interest. So both of my institutions, I've actually served as a physician on the committee that reviews conflict of interest, mostly because I didn't understand and it's so complex and I was so fearful I was going to do something wrong. So I thought, you know, maybe if I sit on this committee, I can understand. Um, And just like Michael said that, you know, you find out that the compliance folks are not big bad people that are just trying to get you. They actually want to support um, this research, um, but they have a lot of rules that they have to follow. So um, we have a trial now um, where, you know, I founded a company, I own the IP, and I want to do the clinical trial at my institution. And I just thought, no way are they going to be able to do this. And uh, I can't be the PI, but then I didn't think any of my faculty, because they all report to me, could be the PI. But I just called up our compliance officer, who I know because I'm on the committee, and he said, let's walk through it. Let's get a team in. So we had a meeting. Um, You know, we have um, a lot of checks and balances. This is way before we submitted our IRB. Um, So a lot of preemptive understanding, but also just asking for help. Um, so we we have all the guidelines. We're going to need, you know, an outside monitor. You probably need a P, another PI from a just different institution. I'm like, oh well, yeah, our oncologist can probably do this with our our folks. Um, you're going to need a plan, you know, a conflict of interest plan. So I, I think um, you know, really getting out in front of it has been very useful in trying to understand it uh, um, as much as possible, um, and then. You know, really, uh, I, I've been so pleasantly surprised with how much help, um, and, and nobody believes me, but, you know, there's like, oh, you're never going to be able to do that. And I'm like, well, I think I can. <laughs> you know, so this is, this is what happened. Now, talk to me in a year when I have my IRB approved <laughs> and have it all. There, there will be a lot of hiccups. So resilience and persistence uh, is also important. Absolutely. Um, transparency and communication is probably the most important thing you can do through any of these processes. You know, the second that it's perceived that you're trying to hide in any pieces of information, that's not received well. Um, but if you walk in openly, you know, discussing these are the approaches that we want to take, whether it's within your academic institution, um, if you're part of a larger group that's in dermatology, you know, just be transparent with the people that are there 
have those open conversations and then figure out what's the strategy that allows you to be able to execute this. Because again, ultimately it's about the patient. If you believe you have an idea that you want to take forward, um, there's a way to do it. The timing might be slightly different, you know, so your, your risk kind of mitigation here from the industry perspective is that some companies are more willing to take that risk if a drug is at a phase two versus others who really want to see the drug actually launched. And the reason being is that just very simplistically, and, you know, and one of the questions we, we were, you know, thinking about, not every IIS actually succeeds. Um, and so one of the questions that comes out of this is if something fails or if a safety event actually happens through the course of your investigator initiated trial, what happens to that data? Well, the sponsor is then required to actually list that within their master file. And so this is why there's a different degree of risk that's associated be, depending on the mechanism of action, the probability of technical success, how much you have a reason to believe in that indication, all these things that come together. And so that's why the companies themselves, you know, if you're still dealing with a drug that's under development and not quite generic, um, there's a lot of those things that have to be reviewed because you have to think about what actually happens. So for example, and just to give her a, a kind of almost a real world, but I'm not going to say the therapeutics name. There was a therapeutic that was tested in a preclinical study that came up with a malignancy risk. And so those individuals as an anti-inflammatory, they had to then list that on their label um, that it had a potential risk of a malignancy. And so that significantly impacted the commercial enterprise that was associated with that therapeutic. And so there's things like that that you have to take into consideration as you're trying to review this and thinking about what's best for the safety of the patient um, we want to obviously be innovative and make sure that we bring forward the right medications for those patients. But then also from the company's perspective, they want to make sure that they don't hit that kind of um, commercial aspect of it as well, because they have to be able to go through. And I mean, let's be honest, they have to make some level of a profit to be able to then go through and do new innovative medicines again and again um, that will capitalize on one another and build the, the foundation even further. I didn't even think about that with some of the information that might come out of these studies and how it could sort of affect the industry or pharmaceutical side. Uh, that's really interesting. And it is a risk on both sides. If, you know, someone does something and it fails, right. It's, but it sounds like there's almost always a benefit of learning, uh, you know, for good or for bad about, about a, a drug or problem um, that, that can be beneficial to everyone, including the patient. I, when you brought up, you know, succeeding and failing and, and, and drug and things like that. It made me think of, I, I used to just sort of think of, and I still do of like this interaction with these studies and trials is that the industry side is usually just supplying the medication or the cost of the medication or things like that. And, and as Beth mentioned, there's a lot of aspects to this that cost money. I mean, designing the trial, uh, to me, it's almost, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes to think about the cost of these trials and, and being an investigator, knowing <laughs> how much money is put into it from the industry side. What should we kind of expect fi financially? Like, do, do most of these type of applications require funding outside of industry or are we really expecting just to get drug or should be, we be asking and discussing for more costs? So again, this is on a company by company basis. Um, and it's also on a drug by drug basis. So for example, if you have a drug that is launched and is generating some level of revenue uh, for the company, they may be more apt um, to provide some level of funding for not only the drug itself, but also for the potential clinical trial. In earlier stages, they may look to you and say, listen, we will do this as a, you know, from an IIT perspective, we encourage you to interact with 
either the NIH or some other funding agency, and we would do that as a partnership. Um, there are NSF grants that we've used in the past um, to be able to help supplement some of those. The, the biggest challenge that you have is just making sure that you have a very clear protocol. And then again, from a transparency perspective, just communicate directly with them and say, listen, this is what we're trying to do. And ultimately, if it fits with the mission of what they have for that therapeutic, there's ways to do it. It just may not be in the timeline that we all think. So for example, it may be that you come up with the greatest idea in the world. They might be just kicking off a of phase three and they may say, listen, um, we love the idea. Let's put it on pause until after the phase three data comes back through. We know that we have a potential path to an approval and then let's execute once the launch actually kicks off. And so I know that that's tough to hear for some people because that can take a year, two years, or even three years, but it's not that they don't believe in the mechanism. It's that they're trying to preserve the integrity of the drug to make sure that nothing else happens that would prevent that drug from then advancing at all, regardless of what indication it is. So there's things like that. Again, it's a open line of communication um, to have with the company itself and representatives within the company. I think I'm going to emphasize uh, Michael's point about trial design and, and, you know, what is the question? You know, these trials that we get to design, you can just design like, you know, really, I think of them not phase one, phase two, but proof of concept. What is the concept I'm proving? And most of the time it's going to be efficacy. And so what's the smallest number of patients? It could be three uh, patients or, or, you know, and, and what's a good outcome measure uh, to make sure what's the right proper duration of the trial, knowing mm -hmm. the mechanism of action. Uh, so they don't have to be, you know, I mean, I, I think without significant NIH funding, you cannot do a multi-site trial. So yep. designing something that for a very specific question, you know, I just want to do X, which is probably some efficacy and a really good um, outcome measure. Uh, and then, you know, you can design the trial that really needs to be done, but you've proved your concept, which I think then gets the pharma company excited and they'll like, okay, let's see how common this disease is and, um, you know, and then design the, the phase two for that particular disease, but keeping it very small, I think, um, and um, very targeted for that endpoint, um, that would be like a no go or go. Cause I, I get kind of confused like phase one B, phase one A, phase, you know, but I love proof of concept, you know, what, what is it that I need to see? In, in in six weeks, uh, three months, knowing existing treatments. And, and again, this is where we can design great trials. You know, for beta blockers, they work fast. So if I don't see a response in four weeks, probably not a great drug. <laughs> and so we only need a four-week trial. Uh, and that's much less expensive, at least for that proof of concept, um, because I'm not really looking at safety for that initial um, uh, thing. So... And then I have a question, Michael. Um, so let's say you get somebody goes into your um, portal, submits th things, and um, what what do you look for um, to guarantee that technical success? So is there like a checklist of things that you'll <laughs> say, you know, um, that gives you that, you know, deserves a, a follow up or, you know, just kind of goes in the garbage basket? <laughs> Sure. And the, the answer is going to be a little ambiguous, but because again, it's, it differs depending on the individuals that are reviewing it. Um, so I'll speak from my side of it. 
when I see a proposal that comes in, I want to understand one, what the unmet need is and where the addressable market actually is. So for example, if it's a orphan disease, what are the current therapeutics that are used in that space? Um, how would this be utilized in either competition with it or as an advantage to what the current therapeutics are? Um, and let's be honest, for most of dermatology, the first round of, of kind of intervention is some level of a steroid. Um, and so do we offer opportunities that are non-steroidal improvements that would target specifically the mechanism that is driving the disease? So, but that's me as a scientist. I immediately look to see that. If I'm convinced of that, then the next question is, um, what's the overall population? Are we going to be looking at a study that could be done in a relatively short period of time with some degree of power? Or are we looking at a trial where it's truly an orphan indication, like one out of every 100,000 people? And so even a 10-patient IIT is going to take us three years to recruit and evaluate. And then it's understanding what are the outcomes? So what would we measure on the back end of it? So for example, despite the fact that there's 3,000 diseases, um, not all of them have clinically definable endpoints. And so that leaves you in an area where your end result is ambiguous. So you have to come up with some concept that says, listen, based on the mechanism of action, I'm looking for changes in this, or I'm looking for clinical efficacy. It has to be something that can really achieve that go, no go decision. If it comes out and says, you know what, it worked to a degree, but we're not sure how well it worked and some of those kinds of questions, um, it leaves us wanting more. And then the question of, well, what is it going to take to invest to do more? Um, and then it kind of gets a little deprioritized until there's either additional, you know, information or something along those lines. So it's really, again, coming to that design part. Once I jump, so really quickly, look at the scientific part of it. Does it make complete sense? Does the mechanism of action, is it associated with disease pathogenesis? And then looking to see how does the clinical design, what are you going to actually take out of it? And is there a clear go, no go strategy at the end of it? That's what I like to see. Yeah. In today's environment, is it a um, common disease or a rare disease that uh, the dermatology space is looking for? Yes, there's, you know, I have the fortunate aspect in my career that I worked on a therapeutic that was developed for generalized postural psoriasis. And partly how we came across that as the lead indication was based on a polymorphism that occurred in those patients. Um, it's a rare population and has been largely successful in terms of its launch. Um, we have other indications that we've gone after where we look at the commercializable entity. Um, and we know other investigators, for example, that I've worked with in the past that ran a 10-patient IIT that then was used to solidify why a particular therapeutic went after you know, these larger markets now. Um, they just happen to be at the precipice of whether or not things like vitiligo or hydrogenitis superativa were worth going after with the therapeutic. And so they ran an IIT, justified it, and now the whole market's exploded. So there's a lot of things that go into this, you know, and again, this is where that open line of communication comes in, is because we don't see, you know, this is um, throughout my entire career, I've tried to maintain some level of closeness with um, not only just the academic community, but with the clinicians as a whole, because you start seeing trends. So for example, you know, post-COVID, we saw all kinds of COVID toes and we saw inflammatory rashes that started to appear. Patients that are treated with anti-PD-1s for um, some level of tumor, the number one kind of side effects that occur in those patients is either a vitiligo or some sort of uh, cutaneous rash. And so these are starting to rise in terms of prominence. And so we start looking to you guys 
to say, this is what's actually coming out in the market. This is what we're seeing. This patient population went from, hey, we never saw this at all five years ago to now one out of every four or five patients has this and we don't have a therapeutic for it. And so all of this is a didactic interaction between you know, us within the pharmaceutical industry and you guys that are on the front lines of treating these patients and making sure that that unmet need isn't just us going out to a commercial company and saying, please pull every record you can from this EMR system to tell us how many patients got diagnosed according to a formulary or to an ICD-10 code that says they had this disorder. So we rely on you guys quite a bit for this. Right. I think that's us knowing our, our value too, Beth. I mean, we hold a lot of great knowledge and experience that we, we are very valuable to our industry partners and, you know, and our collaborators in that sense. And what both of you are saying, I, I really heard a lot of great tips, proof of concept, unmet need, really how to make your application shine. And one thing I heard too is don't, don't think huge and big. I mean, this might be <laughs> something where you're doing a proof of concept or feasibility or something initially and be patient. You know, if you're not ready for us now, you might be in a year and we all know how much time goes into all these phase studies you know it, it shouldn't be a surprise that these are this is going to take a while you know most likely depending on the proposal and and what you've got to do to work with industry and your institution um, but i think you've both shared like a ton of amazing amazing information for for our listeners and 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 thank you to our amazing speakers for such a dynamic discussion on this podcast, Dr. Beth Drolet and Dr. Michael Howell. We've just enjoyed having you. Uh, and um, I know our, our listeners appreciate you as much as we do at PEDRA. Thanks so much for all you do. Thank you all for listening. Our pleasure. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much to our speakers, Dr. Beth Drolet and Dr. Michael Howell. And of course, to our host, Dr. Harper Price. I would also like to thank our program supporters, Arcutus Biotherapeutics, Dermavant Sciences, Galderma, Insight, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Make sure you're following us on social media at Pedra Research to get regular updates on all things Pedra. You can also hop on over to www.pedraresearch.org to browse our virtual education catalog. Thanks for listening.